Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 113 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 113, we are going to talk about officiating in Bible quizzing, or more accurately, uh, Scott recently watched a lot of college basketball, and he was noticing the officiating that was taking place during college basketball, and he had some ideas and thoughts around how that may or may not reflect or parallel or somehow be related to officiating in Bible quizzing. Now, uh, sort of full disclosure here, I only recently verified that college basketball still uses balls that are colored orange. So my level of college basketball awareness is very low. I, I should say that I am 100% aware that college basketball is a thing. But beyond that, there's very little that I know about. So it'll be kind of an interesting exploration, I suppose, today, or at least for me. So with that all said, uh, Scott, take it away. What were your observations? So to set the stage, a lot of what I'm, I'm going to be kind of talking about is surrounding abstraction. So Griffin and I both um, dabble in software development, which is a field that is just endless abstraction, right? If you go all the way down to what a computer is doing, it's electricity and circuits. But for software developers, we don't want to have to know all about electricity and circuits and things. So that gets abstracted. And then just do that about a hundred or a thousand times. And now you have programming languages that allow you to write things that kind of look like words in English. Um, but, it, but at the end of the day, you do... The com you make the computer do stuff. Um, and I think that there are lots of similar abstractions that we can kind of do when we're looking at officiating. And I kind of started thinking about this as I was watching a lot of college basketball because it is, it is March now, which is when the most exciting college basketball is happening. And as I was observing officiating, I was thinking of concepts that could potentially relate to Bible quizzing. And I don't think you have to have a um, basically any knowledge of basketball to follow this, but and I will tr try my best to make sure that that is the case. But let's just dive in. I am so your, first... I'm your I'm your litmus test in this regard, right? Because if I can understand it, then pretty much anybody can understand it. Right. So the first thing surrounds um, something in basketball that an official can call, which is a foul, um, which we don't need to get into the definition of it. But what I was observing was the outcome or the impact of the physical action um, was seemed to be a very large input to whether or not the officials called a foul or not. So um, the kind of abstraction or principle here is you probably, in general, don't want to be evaluating the result of something, like whether a quizzer got, it, got the question correct or incorrect, as any sort of input to making a decision on anything else. <laughs> um, but in basketball, that might actually be useful. So, for example, if someone is um, taking a shot and trying to score and they get hit on the arm, that is going to be called a foul. Now, a player that is stronger um, may be hit with the same force but still makes the shot. And if you watch enough basketball, you find that if the shot goes in, the officials are much less likely to call a foul because I think they are they are inferring that, well, there must not have been that much physical action and the, the negative impact on the shooter was not very large. Now, in my head, this seems like the exact wrong way to go about it. You should define what a foul is in terms of the action taken by the defender and not on what is the impact on the offensive player? Because I feel like there's kind of a gulf between the two that is not that the defender is not in control of. Do you have any thoughts on this so far? Well, yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on what they define a foul to be. Like if a foul is I do something that results in someone not making a shot that they otherwise would have made then the fact that they made the shot means that I didn't foul them. But if the foul is more like I made contact with them in such a way, I don't I have no idea how to objectively define that, but I objectively made contact above some sort of objective threshold, then it's like, okay, yeah, then, then what the outcome of what happens at, you know, of that shot is irrelevant. 
Right. Um, Relating this to quizzing, though, I mean, we don't have any fouls. Well, okay, yeah, we don't really have any fouls related to what another team would do relative to the first team getting or not getting a question, right? So, uh, and that actually brings up a really interesting, I don't know if we want to go there yet, but it brings up an interesting idea of saying, let's say one team A is answering and team B does something really rowdy. Uh, maybe even intentionally trying to get the quizzer to error or something, right? Um, so clearly team B should get a foul regardless of the outcome of quizzer A. But then the question becomes, do you toss the question or do you allow the quizzer the remaining 30 seconds to answer? Uh, that, that becomes very interesting. And then, of course, if the foul takes place as the quizzer is providing the answer, do you count them correct? Whereas, where, where in it, whereas if they did not provide you the correct information, or let's say you know they they weren't fully ready to answer at that point, do you then toss the question because of the distraction level? Right. I am not sure. Um, so let's see here. I am delving into some of the definitions. Um, one type of foul is called when a player uses their hands to impede or slow the movement of another player. So that is kind of, I think part of that definition means you have to examine the impact and not solely the action taken. Right. Slow or impede. Now, if I attempt to slow or impede, but in fact the person is not slowed or impeded, have I fouled them? This would this would read no, which means that if you are a larger and stronger offensive player, then it takes more to foul you, which, <laughs> right. w- w- which doesn't seem to make sense, right? Right, right, um, right. But I, I think it is interesting to examine like whether or not the impact should be taken into, into account, right? Like, I guess one example would be if there is noise um, while a quizzer is answering, how much should the quiz master assess whether an impact was made on the quizzer? Or should they just um, try to to use some internal rubric for the level of the disruption, whether or not it actually disrupted the? Yeah, and of course you know what I'm going to say about that, right? Um, I'm actually not sure. Well, the the idea of like what what is a to what degree is a distraction a distra- distraction? I mean, unless we have some kind of decibel meter on the officials table, like we're, we're talking about something that's subjective, right? Is it a baby crying in the back row that's really, really loud, but I can still hear what the quizzer is saying? Or is it like some car backfired really, really loudly and we happen to be outside. So everybody heard it. And it's this big, like literally the whole room just kind of turns around and goes, Whoa, what was that? Um, including the quiz master, including everybody, like we're all, looking like dazed and confused from the impact of the, of the, you know, sonic shockwave or something like that. Like, where do you draw that line? And I think there are extremes, right? Like the, the, you know, a gun going off in the, in the sanctuary or something like that, heaven forbid a thousand times. Right. But like, clearly that crosses a line of like, yeah, even the quiz master is, is, is no longer paying attention. Right. But a baby crying in the back, um, it's like, well, okay, does it cross the threshold? I don't think so. Uh, and, and where do you, how do we get that to be fair and objective universally? Sure. But let's say we live in the current world, which is, this is not defined, right? Right. Um, the, the level, and we're not going to have recorders that can measure the decibel level. Right. Right. Um, in that reality, I th- would you agree that it is better for an official to kind of try to be consistent about this level of noise means I am throwing the question out um, versus trying to, across levels of noises, try to assess um, what impact it had on the quizzer? I would, in absence of an objective rule, I would want quiz masters and all officials in absence of a, of a, an objective rule to strive to be as consistent as possible, knowing that absolute consistency is impossible, but nevertheless attempting to be in that direction. Sure. But I'm torn with this idea that I don't know how to describe this. I don't, the reality is we already live in a world where 
we would assess a foul based on the impact. Um, well, it's actually, no, sorry, not a foul. We would not, we wouldn't necessarily assess a foul based on impact, but we would, we absolutely would assess like tossing the question based on a distractive amount of noise based on the outcome of the answer, right? So for example, let's say there's that giant, you know, earthquake sound of a car backfiring or something like that, or an airplane flying very, very, very low to the building or something like that, or a car crash, you know, outside the, the, the church on the, you know, on the road nearby or something like that. Right. And it's very audibly, uh, something that happened and the whole room is distracted. Uh, and literally everybody has kind of a start, you know, kind of moment. And then the quizzer pauses for half a second or three seconds and completes their answer prior to the buzzer ringing. Do you toss the question? Like, I think the fact that the quizzer completed the answer within the 30 seconds proves that the distraction wasn't significant enough to actually prevent them from answering, right? Whereas if they are unable to answer within the 30 seconds, they could legitimately claim like, well, the, the distraction was significant enough for me. But then it goes back to the subjective na nature of, well, now the quiz master has to decide whether that's reasonable or not. And I, I just, I don't think it, you can ever get there. Like, I think, I think, I think you ultimately can never toss a question. As a result of this, you can never really toss a question because of a sound distraction. Which would be interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm now thinking of times where I barely stumble on reading a question and no one has jumped yet. And then I continue reading and then someone jumps and everything happens from there. And we get to a theoretically, do you think a quizzer who gets it wrong could challenge and say that my misreading actually held back their memory recall by a second or two? And because of that, they might have gotten it right if given if it was read correctly and it should be thrown out and redone. Maybe the thing is, I have a lot of sympathy for that challenge, not because I think that there's a reasonability to the challenge, but just because in that scenario, I clearly messed up, right? And, and ideally, if I'm reading a question and I stumble over a question, I should toss it and redo it. Like I should not keep, I shouldn't turn around and, and persevere. The only exception to that I would make is if I stumble during a bonus, uh, where then it's like, okay, forget it. I'm starting over. And then I start the preamble from the beginning again, because no team is advantaged, uh, or disadvantaged because of that, of that universe. Uh, but if I, if I started on a question and I stumble, certain teams can be advantaged or disadvantaged in that environment if I don't toss the question. Uh, and so like, uh, because people's brains operate differently and that's fine that people's brains operate differently when I'm absolutely consistent in the way that I'm reading the question and answering. But if I'm inconsistent, I am unknowingly advantaging some brains over others and I don't want to go into that universe. Interesting. Because my current practice and what I would think is good is if I deem my misreading to be small enough and no one has jumped yet, then I consider that it has not had any material impact on anything and I will just continue reading. And my, my misread has to be very small, like saying arch rival with 3.2 kind of syllables because I said arch rival or, some, or something like that. Yeah, but I'm okay with that. Right. So like, like, okay. Again, I, I'm, I would rule on myself in the same way that you're ruling on yourself. Right. It all goes back to the error is very small with an, you know, a very large amount of very thrown into that. Right. The, where it starts to get more problematic is when I stumble, I stutter over something, I stumble over something and I have to like stop and go back a word or something like that. Like I, or right. I clearly say a couple of words out of order or something like that, or I insert an, a word that's not there or, or something like that. Right. That's something where it's like, no, I can't just stop, go back and start over again. Or I can't just go back and correct my mistake and continue because that's going to uh, be inconsistent impact across the three teams. Sure. And I'd agree with that. So the next thing I observed in basketball, college basketball is that if something looks bad, it will get called. Even if, the action didn't actually meet the criteria for being called. Um, 
and I'm not sh- this one might not actually have a great parallel to Bible quizzing, um, but I think what I'm observing is officials are almost p- subconsciously pattern matching, and when they see a sequence of physical moves and the actions and reactions of of the players in their minds they're like this has been a foul 99 out of 98 out of 100 times prior so it's probably a foul now or this is usually a travel so it's i'm going to call a travel now without actually saying did the definition and criteria for calling a foul or a travel get fulfilled yeah the I think there is actually a small parallel in quizzing, although I don't think it happens in PNW all that often anymore and possibly doesn't happen in other districts all that often anymore. Uh, And I don't recall ever seeing it happen at internationals, nor I don't think I've ever seen it happen in Great West either. So it's a pretty rare thing. But many years ago, uh, eons and eons ago in the Dark Ages in the past, otherwise known as the early 2000s, there was a time where I was, was I an official at that point? I may have actually still been a coach. Then that would have been in the 90s. So maybe this was in the 90s. I I forget exactly when this was, but a long time ago. Uh, And I was sitting in room one and the room one uh, Quizmaster, uh, very sort of uh, stoic and um, very friendly guy, but very stoic uh, and was uh, very professional. And there was a quizzer who got up and or jumped on a question, got up to answer, didn't clearly didn't know the answer and waited the full 30 seconds and eventually uh, right at the right before the timer was going to sound. And then we had a visual timer in room one uh, back then. Uh, So something around like second 26, 28, seven or something like that. He reached down and you know how there there used to be these uh, I don't I don't know if they make them anymore, but they were sort of outdoor pants. You would go uh, hiking in these pants and you could detach them just below like where they would be shorts. They kind of Velcroed off. So you could basically uh, wear them as pants in the morning. But as you're hiking, you could simply remove the lower portion of your pants and turn them into shorts just by pulling on them and the Velcro would detach and so forth. So basically he's, um, he's there. He gets to second 26, 27. He says, I have no idea. And he pulls off his pants and turns around and sits back down, right? And when I say pull off his pants, I don't mean like all of his pants came off, right? I just mean the the leg portion, the, the lower leg portion of his pants were removed and he went from wearing pants to wearing shorts, right? As a result of these things. Now he didn't take the, the lower leg portions of his shorts and throw them at anybody. He literally just pulled them off and took them back to his chair and sat down. But it was clearly a... Um, it was not done for reasons of my legs are hot. I want to remove these. It was done clearly from a, um, I'm just being a juvenile, silly person. Right. Uh, and so the quiz master gave him a foul. Right. Um, and it, of course it, it, it had absolutely zero impact on anything, uh, whatsoever, but the quiz master was like, he didn't say this, but I mean, you could tell he was, he was annoyed because it was like, you're not acting professional in room one. I'm going to give you a foul, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I don't know. I, I sort of thought it was appropriate because I mean, clearly the guy was being, I don't know, again, subjective, super subjective. Right. But it was over this line of, of kind of like, dude, Yes, you can have fun in a quiz room, and and even if it's room one, you should have fun and be relaxed and enjoy the process and that kind of stuff. But you know, there is a certain level of of decorum and and professionalism that's appropriate, and you kind of went over the line there. Yeah. Now, how about these two examples that might um, play on this principle, which is a quizzer jumps and starts answering very confidently, articulately, with wonderful cadence but they happen to just be wildly out of context. Do you think it's possible that a quiz master um, chooses not to verify where they are because of um, the level of expertise they are displaying while answering? Yeah, not in PNW, but but absolutely that is true as a norm. I have seen that 
routinely um in maybe not a, not maybe not in internationals but like that is a well okay <laughs> maybe not in internationals of today but internationals of yesteryear that definitely happened and it definitely happened uh yeah it's a it it, it is a very common thing with quiz masters who don't have an easy way to look up uh in the material right so for example if somebody's sitting there with uh, cbqz or quiz master's assistant or some sort of really easy way to start looking up material or if there's an answer judge who's on their a game then they're clicking away or looking things up really rapidly and i think you you avoid that situation but if you've got a you know a quiz master uh by themselves or well with, with a scorekeeper and they don't have easy access to that material and let's say that they're not they don't have the material memorized themselves then it's like well okay you the confidence is a proxy uh and so you know looking up what a quizzer is saying without reference material lookup electronic ele uh, reference material lookup is is not easy right i think the flip side is a quizzer answering and is just stumbling um it is obvious they don't know the verse that um the question and answer reside in but at the end of the day you need to evaluate if they actually said the information that would call them correct without going out of context or saying anything incorrect um, and that's definitely something I've had to work really hard on because you don't want to call them right because you feel like they didn't earn it. But that's not part of the criteria for ruling someone correct. Yeah, that's very true. That one's easier because, you know, if somebody's stumbling around and they really clearly don't know the information, uh, it's very easy for me to follow along with them and, you know, search uh, word by word as they're as they're talking and try to figure out where they're going out of context now I don't rule that they're out of context until I've got a very clear like okay there's three words you're clearly over here now kind of stuff I would love to see the rule book get a little bit more actually a lot more objective about what that means um, and you know there were some conversations about this at uh, while we were packing up the tents this last time uh, at ABC, I think we were saying something like, well, what if it was just three words, like a two word uh, key phrase, a uh, unique phrase is, is insufficient, but a three word unique phrase is sufficient to be called out of context, period, you know, period, regardless of any other factor, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I can, I can, I can jive with that, right? Whatever, whatever the standard is, like there is some sort of objective, like once you say that third word, if that becomes the, the objective standard, then it's like, okay, great. You're, you're out of context. But prior to that, you still have your time. Right. All right. So the next one is the inconsistency between early game, the game in general and crunch time when it matters. Um, you will see, um, a lot of inconsistency among basketball officials with what they're willing to call early in the game um, versus late in the game. And I think this another parallels in football where um, the end of a game often ends with a, a Hail Mary, a very long, desperate, unreliable play. And officials kind of, um, you hear the term swallow the whistle, meaning they kind of don't want to call a penalty because it would have such a large impact on the game that they will just decide to not call anything rather than s apply what exists, right? right. Um, and I, I, I get the motivations, and I'm not saying that it would be better if they just, like, quote-unquote, blindly applied the rulebook regardless of game situation. But this is definitely something that happens. I don't know if um, you, you have any thoughts on that sort of inconsistency and if it's wholly bad or if it's just kind of bad or if it's actually good um, but also if you've seen any applications in quizzing right like when um, there's a very critical question officials are less likely to award a foul or to call someone incorrect because of um, going out of context with something that is like maybe maybe not or or anything like that yeah i don't know about quizzing i mean this is this is you know, do you call pass? I mean, I don't know anything about basketball, but let's say you switch to football, right? This is calling right. pass interference when there's, you know, the last 
play of the game, Hail Mary, you know, touchdown kind of thing? And do you call PI on the defender or, or, or whatever, and then place the ball? I mean, like, where, where, what do you do with that, you know, kind of stuff? Right. And, and it's, and it's actually, it's probably better to say, like, it was on the receiver. The receiver had pass interference, uh, pushing the defender out of the way, catching the ball, you know, one yard before the end zone, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the, 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 and the time, uh, goes to zero right at that point. Like what, how do you, how do you adjudicate that? Right. And ultimately to me, the fact that the officials, like you said, swallow the whistle in that context sort of demonstrates to me how awful pass interference as a concept is, right? Because it is so subjective and like what, what, maybe it's gotten better. I've sort of stopped watching football recently for some definition. Okay, it's gotten worse or stayed the same. It's still bad. It's gotten worse. Yeah. It's gotten worse. Okay, so like, and I and certainly like back when I was paying attention to football, uh, like the thing, like the thing that would make the fans more upset than anything, and I think maybe even the coaches more upset than anything, were weird pi calls where where it's just like that doesn't seem consistent right and especially when you're talking about like pi calls that are different for each team you know like one team seems to be the underdog and they don't get a lot of pi calls but the guys who come in who are you know uh, stronger tend to get a lot of pi calls or vice versa or something like that right there's the golden team that never gets pi calls or or seemingly never gets pi calls and it just keeps going back to this notion of like it's it's subjective ergo you like there's no you can't go back to the tape right um even though there's not tape anymore but like uh when you make uh when you make calls of like when when is the 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 receiver down right it's like okay there's very very specific objective rules for that like they're two feet and it has to touch in such a way and blah 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 maintain control of the ball that gets start starts to get a little bit you know, subjective, but the idea is generally speaking, like there are, there are much more objective ways of ruling in those sort of situations than in PI and PI gets all the hate. And so when, if there is going to be a parallel in quizzing, it's going to be when we see a situation where there's subjectivity, right? So fouls, I think have some of that. And I know some people would argue that the subjectivity of the fouling is important and fouling to me isn't that big a deal because we have a pretty high level of professionalism right now in quizzing. But if that were to go away, uh, hopefully it never does, right? But if that were to go away, the foul is what we use to start correcting that. And I don't like that it becomes subjective because it's so easy for biases that we have that we're unaware of to creep in uh, and, and cause us to alter our perception of, of what the file is going to be. Right. And we do this, we, we, this, this happens everywhere. Like the fact that it happens to be a rookie quizzer answering a question, it's her first time getting, getting up. She's really nervous and she starts to go out of context. Do I slow down or sort of go, "Eh, well, don't, don't call her out of context. Give her a chance. It's like, no, I have to be fair. I have to call her out of context. If she goes out of context, even though I really, really don't want to, and I want to be supportive of, you know, her making a, taking a risk and, and trying to get a question and, and that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, I think, I think fairness objective fairness is is has to be there in officiating or people lose interest in in the sport right and i do agree that any any rule that is any amount subjective is probably more of the problem here but another way to phrase this is um if we're on question one or the first play of a basketball or football game whether or not the officials call something that is subjective one way or the other is going to have a very small impact on Um, the win probability of all the competitors, right? Their chances of winning this competition. But if it is question 20 or the last play of a game, um, what the official chooses to do, it might have 90% impact on win probability, right? Right. (laughs) Or or 100%. And I find that in those situations, the officials will call whatever, like will be optically like less hard to um, take issue with, even if it is, um, not what they might've called at the beginning of the game. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I, I mean, I think that's that that definitely can and probably even does happen in quizzing. I don't know that it happens in in P and W per se, but I mean, it it certainly has happened in the past. I think we get better with that by having more objective rules because then if a quiz master doesn't call it there's the the challenge opportunity to say like and i mean granted how do you challenge a lack of a foul uh but like you, you the can't. more you yeah like the more you make it objective the less opportunity there is for a quiz master to wiggle out of doing what they're supposed to and this actually brings up something that i would do that's almost the opposite and might also be not good which is if i know that it matters so much i am like completely on edge to to like give a quiz master prompt at the instant that i should whereas maybe on question one i am less worried about giving it at the exact instant and we'll kind of just give it in a very timely manner but but i feel like if it's question 20 i may be almost starting to say again or quote is complete before that final syllable is out of the quizzer's mouth. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I totally sympathize. I think certainly we need to avoid that. Um, I think more interestingly is regardless of whether it's question one or question 20, if the timer is getting very close to 30, I'm going to be looking for excuse, looking for excuses to say what's your question if that hasn't been if that's going to end up being a requirement, say for a reference question, right? Um, if if I didn't fully complete the 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 question in my in my opening, I'm listening to the quizzer. I'm I'm thinking they're getting close. They haven't really 100% answered the answer yet, but we're at second 28 or 29 and it's like do, i'm i'm feeling really really antsy about jumping in and asking them for their question right now that i do frequently um not not that i'm jumping in on on second 29 but as they approach second 30 i'm getting more and more uh what's the word intense um constipated i don't know something i'm getting way more uptight in that moment to 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 the point where once they actually say the correct answer i can jump in and say what's your question right and sometimes that makes a difference right so like if i say what's your question very rapidly and they're on you know second 28 they can actually have enough time to to get uh the the remainder of the question in if i if I say it slowly, like normal speed, like what's your question? I've chewed up a second of their two seconds of remaining time and maybe they don't they don't have the ability to finish that. And that's I don't know, I don't like that about myself. I I think I should be more consistent there. Right. I remember explaining this to someone very much like, look at me and how good I am. And their response was like but isn't that unfair where you're giving these quizzers in these crunch time situations a better chance at getting it correct than you are the majority of the time you're quiz mastering? Well, sort of. I would say that I'm doing it consistently for everyone, right? So the idea being that if you are answering, if if you as a quizzer are answering on, uh, completing the answer on second 10 versus second 28, I will treat you exactly the same as a different quizzer answering on second 10 or second 28. It's just that between you and that other quizzer, I will treat the two of you differently when both of you are on second 10 versus second 28. Ergo, even though 10 and 28 are this are different, it is consistent across every quizzer. And I think that's the that more than anything is the key bit. And of course, again, I'm not justifying what I'm doing. I still don't think what I'm doing is right. Um, I'm admitting that I'm doing something that I think is probably not right. However, I don't think it's super bad because at least I'm being consistent. Interesting. Um, and does that make sense? Like I'm not advantaging, at least I don't think I'm advantaging one quizzer over another. I'm, I'm just, I'm shortening the amount of time for, you know, querying for question because of where that quizzer happens to be within their clock time. But I would do that consistently regardless of the quizzer. Sure. And I think what I do is... The later that we are in a quiz, the more I will jump in with my prompt than I would earlier in the quiz. It's not about being later in the clock. It's about being later in the quiz. Interesting. So even if they were even if they were answering, say, on second 10, you would still jump in early? 
Well, I mean, not early, but earlier so, than you would otherwise. So I think in general, over the course of 30 seconds, I am more likely to jump in quicker as you get to the end of the 30 seconds right. as a principle. But then similarly, inside of a inside of a quiz, if we're in those last five questions, I, I will be jumping in even faster at, at every point in the clock. Although the rate the the extra fastness at which I will prompt at, say, second 12 is probably almost zero. It might be faster, but you probably can't tell. Um, so it's like two things in play that both kind of add up to the biggest delta being if you are answering at second 29 on question 20. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I could see how that that could be. I could see how that could be unfair, right? Based on because I'm going to get a little bit more time to answer. I mean, fractionally so, but I'm I'm getting a very small amount of extra time to answer if I've uh, slowed my my. I've I've strategically tried to get my questions toward the end of the the twenty questions versus the earlier portion of the twenty questions. So I could see that making a difference. Sure, but you could boil it down to at the end of the day. Um, based only on the differences of, of the quizmaster's actions, quizzers are getting different amounts of time to answer. Well, sure, in in your scenario, but not in what in the scenario I'm talking about. Sure, in your scenario, right? If you're taking less time to give a prompt, they're getting more time um, in the times where you set it quicker. Well, sure, but but that's based on the time that they've consumed. Ergo, the time is always going to be consistent. But if you take out of their thirty seconds, if um, point three of it is you giving the prompt versus point two five. That's a different num- amount of time that the quizzers had to an- get it correct. That's absolutely true. But that that's relative, assuming that that is objectively consistent based on where through those 30 seconds the quizzer is, it's still completely fair, right? So in other words, whether you're on question one, two, seven, or 20, you're getting a consistent amount of time based on your answering, right? Even though I am inconsistent in, and I'm not, I'm not trying to defend that, you know, my way is being right or good or proper. I think it's actually probably bad um, to do it inconsistently like that. But what I'm saying is it's not advantaging any quizzer, right? The, the speed at which I provide the prompt is entirely based on the speed at which the quizzer actually provides the answer. Sure, sure. And like, I definitely get that. Um... You providing you saying the prompt a fraction of a second slower when the quizzer has 15 seconds left to answer versus when they have five is like the actual impact to the quizzer is basically zero. Right. Sure. But, but I, even if but even if it wasn't, let's say let's say hypothetically it wasn't right. Let's say um, let's say uh, at second 25 and beyond, my prompt is 0.2 seconds. Right. And at uh, second seven, my prompt is 1.1 seconds or something like, or, or something even more ridiculous. Let's say my prompt is two seconds, right? Two full seconds at, at 10 seconds, right? If as long as I am consistent in doing that right now, granted, if we're talking about two seconds, it would be awfully difficult for me to claim that I'm being consistent, right? But let's just say some amount of pixie dust magic has happened and I'm consistently providing a two second prompt at 10 and a 0.2 second prompt at 27 or something or 25 or whatever, right? If I'm doing that consistently, I'm not favoring any quizzer over any other quizzer. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying that there's a different, there's an amount of favoring. I'm just saying that the two quizzers will have different amounts of total time in which to answer. Well, sure. But they're going to have total, they're going to have different total amounts of time to answer, uh, based on their amount of answering, right? So like, like, like for, for example, you and I, let's say you're a quizzer, I'm a quizzer. We both get 30 seconds, right? If, I, if it takes you 10 seconds to answer a question and it takes me 28 seconds to answer a question, it took me objectively 18 seconds longer than you, right? Um, so we had a different amount of time answering the question. Um, but like, who cares? Sure, but like, if one of us is prompted at second 10 and one of us is prompted at second 25 and um, the quiz master takes a different amount of time to say the prompt and we both answer right in the instant before the 30 second timer goes off, we have had different amounts of non quiz master speaking time in the 30 seconds in which to answer. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But, 
the the if I begin a seven second, <laughs> let's just get really crazy here. If I begin a second seven second prompt for what's your question? What's your question? Right? You don't actually have to wait for me to get to the end of that before you can answer. No, no, no. That's totally true. And I think at the end of the day, any differences are so slight that they really don't matter. But I think it's still a good principle that a quiz master should not be changing their actions based on point in the quiz or point in the timer. Yeah, true. I, I mean, and generally, I, 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 I agree with you. I don't think it's good to be inconsistent in anything. Um, I'm struggling to see the impact. But yeah, I, I, sure. I agree. I but agree. I mean, there are definitely quiz masters who will say your question instead of what's your question because it takes less time. And I don't think yeah. that should be done. No, I agree. I think the prompt should be uh, uh, the same across every room. So here's another one. Happens in sports all the time, which is calls made based on the scoreboard. Um, so a parallel in quizzing might be we're on question 20 and it's 300 to 100 to 10. And someone's answering. And maybe what they've said is not enough for me to call them correct if we were on question one. But we're on question 20. I might just say you're correct. Yeah, I don't like that one. Um, I think I think there is there's the amount of debate where I will say that it's okay to be different, right? So let me let me describe that differently. So if somebody is answering and they're not, they don't have enough to be counted correct, even if they're on the third place team and them getting it correct or not is utterly irrelevant to the ultimate outcome of the quiz. Then it's like, I'm going to still count them incorrect if they're not correct enough. Right. But what may end up happening is depending upon the significance of the answer, the, the outcome of this significant, sorry, let me rephrase that. Depending upon the significance of the outcome of the ruling, I may take more time in adjudication if there is not a clear and obvious uh, ruling to be had. So for example, if, um, uh, if for example, let's say you've got a two teams tied for first going into question tw uh, 20, and one of the teams uh, answers, but they don't quite get it perfect, but I think that they might be right. And then their timer goes out and I need to then talk about it with my, uh, you know, scorekeeper or answer judge or whatever. Right. I might spend quite a lot more time thinking about it and figuring it out and trying to get the ruling right than I would be if say it was a first place team with 300 and a second place team with a hundred. Right. Right. Um, and I think in the most general of senses, um, like it, it's fine to kind of change how much you're spending making a ruling. When it comes to um, actually making the ruling, you want to try to make whatever ruling you would make on question one, on question 20. But I think there are scenarios where you would change that, right? I think within a district's consolation quizzes, people probably would say it's it might be better um, to, to move on with question 20. Um, and I don't think I've ever recalled anyone modulating their calls based on the scoreboard in at internationals or something where it probably still has implications right right um so in basketball you cannot run with the ball right that's kind of the whole point of the game you have to dribble it um if you're not dribbling and you're moving it's called a travel and in recent years i learned this from my brother who is an avid basketball fan there is something called the gather dribble which is kind of as a player is receiving an inbounds pass over their head or stepping back to take a shot um, they will kind of take um, enough steps that if the rule book was applied as it's written, would be a travel. But it, it has kind of been normalized as okay. And by normalized as okay, it means it's been done enough times without being called that more players do it and it continues to not be called. Now, can you think of any such thing in Bible quizzing that maybe got normalized over time. And this is not something that would happen in the course of one quiz or one quiz meet, but maybe over seasons where um, something that based on the rule book should be called one way um, and was called that way nine years later is called differently. I think, I think, yes, I would be, I would struggle to actually put my finger on a specific example of this, but I think platform protocol in terms of fouls has definitely changed over 20 or 30 years. Um, I think there's a lot more that we allow 
in terms of conduct on the platform that we would not necessarily be okay with, you know, 30 years ago. And I don't, and, and I think part of there's, there's sort of two reasons for that. I think in general, quizzing has become more professional in the sense of uh, professional in the sense of like quizzers who are up there quizzing tend to take it seriously. Um, there tend to be fewer clowns uh, and show-offs, uh, you know, that sort of thing. That may be just a, a factor of the fact that, you know, quizzing is less popular. So the people who are still invested in quizzing are the ones who are taking it a little bit more seriously on average. So we on average now versus 30 years ago have fewer clowns uh, on the on the platform. But if there was clown-like behavior on the platform, I think now that sort of behavior does not get fouled as much or to the same extent as it would be, say, 30 years ago. Right. And I think there are definitely changes, especially on something like fouls, which is highly suggestive, su suggestive, highly subjective, and really has usefulness based on was there a negative impact to the competition. And so if we've changed how we call it, but still kind of meet those unwritten criteria, it's, prob it's probably fine. Um, but I think a good general principle is if there's a rule that we don't really like and wish it were different, we shouldn't just rule as if we had the different rule. We should try to change the rule. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, I 1000% I, I agree with that. And it bothers me tremendously when uh, we have conversations where people are like, I don't like that rule. It doesn't make sense. We should not follow that rule. And I'm like, okay, great. Then we, the solution is to change the rule, uh, you know, change the rules either in the rule book, or if it's at a district level, then, you know, uh, vote on however your district does to uh, override a, a particular rule, that kind of thing. Not just say, you know, the, the night before a quiz uh, meet or, you know, the morning of a quiz meet or whatever, say we should change this rule now because it doesn't make any sense. Like that stuff really bothers me. It's like, no, we, we, we have a rule book. We, we play according to the rules. And if we don't like the rules, we change the rule book, not just ignore the rule. It reminds me of a restaurant. I don't I don't remember the restaurant, but they served steaks. And in the menu, they had a big diagram that explained that if you order a steak rare, what is rare everywhere else is actually we cook it medium rare here. <laughs> right, and right, if you right. order it medium rare, we cook it medium. <laughs> and it was just like this whole song and dance to try to probably lessen their liability of serving meat that might be slightly undercooked. Um, but it was just weird how they're like yeah it's the exact same scale but shifted one just for us <laughs> well and here's the thing in a restaurant like that if i saw that on a menu i would actually kind of be appreciative to the restaurant because they're clearly trying to be precise um versus kind of waving it away you know it's like if you go to a thai restaurant and some thai restaurants have four stars of spicy as their maximum some have five some have seven some have four where the number two means something totally different than a place where you go and the number two means something very different, right? So like I can go to a restaurant and I can order, I tend to like my food fairly spicy and I can, they can have four stars on their, on their, you know, on their chart and I can order four stars and be like, hmm, I can taste that this is spicy, but Maybe it needs a little bit more. And other times I can go to a restaurant and there's four stars and I can order a three and I can't finish it because my stomach is burning from the inside and I'm going to die. Uh, you know, so like having some sort of consistency there <laughs> is gastro, uh, gastrally appreciated. Right. Um, in the world of golf clubs, um, there's something called, um, well, let's just pick a nine iron. And it's been called the same thing over the course of golf. But a 9-iron used to be, let's see here, 52 degrees um, of loft, which is kind of whether the ball goes high in the air or lower in the air. Um, but over time, golf club manufacturers realized that golfers are super vain and love to hit the ball further. And so they started making it not 52 degrees, but 51 degrees, and then 50, and then um, 40, no, Instead of 52 degrees, 50, I'm going the other, yeah, so they would make it less, right? Um, 51, 50, 49, 48. And so today's 9-iron 
it goes way further than the nine iron of a decade ago, but because they're different clubs. Um, and I think you see this across lots of industries where things get kind of relabeled. Um, well, they don't get relabeled, but they change under the scenes. You know, um, a half gallon of ice cream is not a half gallon anymore. Um, and at the end of the day, we want consistent expectations. Even if you say that you are not selling us a half gallon, you're selling us whatever ounces. Right. We got time for one more? Yeah. So I, I did struggle to find a parallel um, to this in quizzing. But taking, again, fouls in basketball, officials will sometimes realize that early in a the game, they were too lax calling fouls. And so as a result, the teams adjusted to be more physical because they now assumed that they could be more physical and a foul would not be called. And then at some point, the officials are like, Mm, we're not okay with the level of physicality that is going uncalled. And we're now going to call it a lot stricter than we were uh, previously to kind of get control back. Um, and I think it just results in, in teams um, being confused about what is going to be a foul or not in basketball. Um, I'm not sure what would be a parallel in quizzing. Like maybe in some years officials were very gung-ho on calling quizzers out of context for a sequence of words um, and then realized they didn't like that and kind of changed their practices in future years and then maybe yo-yoed back at some point. Yeah, I mean, we go back to fouls again. I know we've been talking about fouls and quizzing an awful lot, but I mean, they're the most subjective thing in quizzing. Ergo, I think they fall victim to this more than anything else. So the sort of the, the, the thing that's happening even now uh, where there's uh, quizzers who are communicating amongst themselves, usually it's just random chatter and, and thumbs up and, you know, high-fiving and that kind of thing, or or the, the verbal equivalent of a high-five as the quiz master is starting the next question, right? Uh, and you're not supposed to do that. Technically, that's a foul. Most of the time, it's really not a big deal, and it gets overlooked. And oftentimes, it's because the quiz master doesn't notice it, and either the scorekeeper slash answer judge isn't aware, is focused on other things, that kind of stuff. And so I have had occasion where a coach will come up to me and say, hey, by the way, this is happening. And then I'm like, oh, okay. So I'll make an announcement of like, please don't do that. And then I'll start to try to, I'll, I'll do my best to pay more attention to it. Um, it's really hard to do that. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll at least warn the quizzers like, hey, please don't do that, you know, kind of stuff and, and try to increase my level of foul calling on that after that, that warning that's there. Um, sometimes that can be less subjective. So like, and one example would be like quizzers who are, uh, their lights go on after I start a question, right? Uh, but if I haven't begun mouthing the shape, but I've started to like, I'm, I'm in the preamble still, I might reset the the counter and and keep going. It might be a situation where, you know, if I if I'm if I start in on a mouth shape, but I haven't actually formed the mouth shape, um, and the quizzer clearly isn't paying attention, I might give them a warning and say, "Hey, look, you you," and I shouldn't do that. I really should foul, right? Um, but there, but then there are times where, like, no, I've made a mouth shape. I can't unmake my mouth shape even though there's literally been no sound that comes out of my mouth it's like well my mouth started to form a shape there and their light went on i have to call them and there have been more than one time where uh you know it's a quizzer who isn't even paying attention is totally off in their own mind somewhere and i'll call their name and they're like yeah what i'm like well you 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 got the jump <laughs> you know kind of stuff and it's like sorry i I don't like embarrassing you like that, but I have, I, I have no option at that point. Right. It does remind me though, like you are right. A lot of the time the quizzer is just not paying attention at all. Um, at, but there are other times where a quizzer is into the question, not intending to jump and did, then they get called on and then just immediately get the question right. And hmm. it, it's it, it, like the times that has happened, it's a quizzer that based on their past scoring, you wouldn't expect to be able to get the question right. And they often do. <laughs> Not often. They've done it more often than, like, it surprised me. And I think that that's a good lesson that 
you probably are more able to get questions correct than you assume. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's very true. I think that's true for most people. I think it's a usual... This is something that actually I noticed this very last meet, like a couple of weeks ago. There were a number of people... I mean, it wasn't it wasn't super common, uh, but it, it was definitely more than one time where this would happen. And I think it was more than about three times uh, over the course of the two days where a quizzer would jump intentionally right but but only getting a couple syllables or you know maybe a word and a half or something like that and they would they would stand up for about 2 or 3 seconds and then they'd be like I, yeah i don't know and they would sit back down and i feel kind of bad cuz i'm kind of like but i think you actually could give it a try right i mean maybe you have absolutely no idea but at least start talking give it at least an attempt worst case scenario i just call you out of context and you know who cares right it's not a big deal um, the end result is the same, um, but to give up before even trying, it's like, you know, say a verse, say your favorite verse, right? Um, there's no harm in doing that. The, the end result is going to be the same. Right. It does remind me of a couple principles, though. One is humans are just risk averse. I remember um, when my wife was coaching, she coached a quizzer and met their parent once. And their parent said, I like th- this parent said, um, thinking that they were being the most helpful parent in the world, said, I told them, don't make any errors ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, "Like, sure, like you don't want to make only errors, but you should be making some errors, you know? And it's like, I think that that's a not uncommon thing to assume is that an error is like bad. In 100% of cases, it is bad. And yeah, that's not true. Um, and then I had another principle. Well, before you move on to that one, I want to, I want to echo that. Like my daughter's in quizzing now and my daughter is very fortunate to be on a team from, uh, well, it's Madras one or two. Ooh, I should, I should know this. Hmm. I think it's Madras one. I actually don't even remember, but anyway, she's, she's very fortunate to be on the team that she's on because the captain of the team is the first person. It is has the highest individual average in PNW right now, and the captain of her team errors from time to time. Like, like I mean, not all the time, but it's fairly common. Like, like it, she will not go through a meet without having an error, and it's a really good thing. It's an extremely good thing because I can tell my daughter, my daughter hasn't aired yet. She's gotten a quiz, or sorry, she's gotten questions at every quiz meet. Uh, but she hasn't aired yet. And it's kind of this thing where she's like, I haven't aired yet. I'm not going to air. That's a big deal. I don't want to air. And I'm like, no, no, no. If you're not airing at all, what's happening is you're not jumping aggressively enough, right? What that means is you could actually get a higher, you know, at the end of the day, you could get a higher individual average if you were to increase your jumping speed by a very small amount, right? I want to see a couple of errors happen every so often, because if you if you honestly get zero, it means you're being inefficient, you know, kind of stuff. And what's great is I can point to her and say I can point to her captain. I say, look at your captain like your captain is clearly doing it right. And she still errors. Right. Um, That's that's a sign that maybe it's okay to err and you should aim for, you know, trying to err maybe once a meet, you know, that kind of thing. Now, granted. I don't want to go overboard on that. I don't want to say like, yes, try to get three errors every quiz meet or something like that. Like, like, please don't do that. Right. Um, but you know, there is a, there is a balance there getting, getting a perfect, you know, two Oh four Oh, whatever it happens to be, um, is, is not the ideal. The ideal is to maximize your individual average. Right. Right. Um, and quizzers don't generally have to worry about it, but you could, air in a way that is still maximizing your individual average, but it is not maximizing the team's total score. Yeah, that's very Um, true. But quizzers shouldn't have to worry about that. That's up to the coach to um, handle. Um, But yeah, those are my favorite quizzers to coach is the ones that would have 100% accuracy and would average one and a half to two and a half jumps a quiz or something where I'm like, you have no idea how easy it is for you to go from a 30 to a 65. Right, exactly. All it takes is just jump control. Yeah, exactly. Whereas you get a quizzer that goes two and two, three and two every quiz. For them to go from a 40 or a 50 to um, a 70 is borderline impossible. Because it requires just such an overhauling of the level of material knowledge that you have. Uh, But my other principle was that um, 
well, I had it and then it's gone. People, you'll see them jump, say nothing, sit down. Quizmaster will say the answer and they will say, oh, I knew that. Uh-huh, so, exactly. So there are a couple things in play here. One is we love to tell ourselves that we knew it once we hear the answer, which is why if you are ever practicing anything, right, a musical instrument for a test, for an interview, you should give yourself the test without knowing the answer. If you were like reading, you know, you look at a math question and then you flip to the back and look at the answer and then say, yeah, I knew that. Most of the time you're fooling yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one good principle. But the other principle is you do know it a lot of the time. And I think we prioritize it, it will feel bad for me to publicly get something wrong. When people are almost never like judging other people who get questions wrong. You know, we're all just thinking about like, how can we do better or, um, and so be more willing to just say something, you know, especially, I mean, just in any situation, you know, as you said, quote your favorite verse or, um, the downsides are not as big as you are making them in your head. Yeah, indeed. Very true. Well, and on that bombshell, we should wrap things up. Uh, want to make sure that everybody knows that they can email us at iq at cbqz.org. If you have any sort of thoughts about topics we should cover or questions about quizzing or questions about anything, we'd love to hear from you, especially if you disagree with anything that we've said. Uh, we, we put disagreements to the front of the line in terms of referencing them on future episodes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing, and you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time on Slack in the Inside-Quizzing channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Thanks to all of our listeners, and thank you, Griffin. Thank you.